Well, thank you for leading us in those wonderful confessions of our faith. And if you were listening, you through each one of those, a very distinct hope that comes through in Christian music in general, good hymnology, but especially the songs that we we sang, the that wonderful hope that we have. And that is what marks us as different, especially during this time of the year. Uh, as we celebrate different events, there is a, a hope to us, an optimism that is not based in uh, just wishful thinking, the power of positive thinking, but is based solidly in the truth that God is the ancient of days, and one day we will stand before him, and because of what Christ has done, we will enjoy that moment, and we are looking forward to that. Connected with that hope is a text that we have been studying over the last several weeks. We're going to jump back into it this morning. It's 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we are in a section here of of a very detailed study of, of the last of things related to the end times and uh, what's next in God's redemptive plan. It's a paragraph that begins in verse 13 of chapter 4 and goes through to the end of 18, and we've spent several uh, studies already uh, on this paragraph, and we're going to pick up where we left off uh, last Sunday. Uh, we were planning, or I was planning to do more of a Q&A. I thought I'd get through more of what I did uh, the last Sunday, and we'd have more of a Q&A uh, this Sunday, but we're going to postpone that a little bit so that we can get through the text to verse 18. And then, uh, not next Sunday, which is going to be a special Thanksgiving time that we have here as a group, but the Sunday after, which will be December 5th, uh, I will uh, try to answer the questions that uh, some of you have been sending, those some really good questions And I want to say this again, if you have a question based on what we talk about even here this morning as we get a little bit further on into the end of this particular paragraph in 1 Thessalonians, uh, get my email address off the screen here and send me an email and I'll try to incorporate that into the growing number of questions and we'll do our best on uh, the 5th of December to to get through those and provide you with some answers from Scripture. Let's look now at the text uh, that we are studying this morning the text which provides us with such detailed information of the next event to anticipate in God's redemptive plan. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I noted last time as we got into verses 16 and 17 in particular that there are a large number of Christians who have a lot of misunderstandings about the rapture. Certainly, the concept of the rapture is ridiculed at the world at large. Uh, they look at the concept of the rapture of, of, as being something that's pure myth and uh, it, that is uh, ridiculous in, in nature and unbelievable. And even among Christians, there's a lot of misunderstanding. In fact, I'll hear it regularly that you will have Christians saying that the rapture is not in the Bible, that that is an invention of a more recent kind of fundamentalist Christianity, and we will, a very significant myth that the rapture is not in the Bible. We'll deal with that in, in a few moments. But there's a lot of misunderstanding, and so it is good for us to spend the time getting deep into this text, which deals with the rapture, and walking through it very carefully. Because when we look at all of Paul's teaching, it is these verses, particularly verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, that give us the best step-by-step detail, sequential detail, of the events that will take place related to the coming of, the, of, of Christ and the church. And as I said, in these, in these verses, we see the coming of Christ for the church in four stages. We looked at the first stage last Sunday, and that is the descent of Christ. The descent of Christ in verse 16, we have this statement that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a of God. 
This is the first stage of the next event on the calendar of God's redemptive plan, the descent of Christ. The second stage, and we're going to pick it up here this morning, is the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And then the third stage, the rapture of all believers to Christ, and then stage four, the future of all believers with Christ, the future of all believers with Christ. Now, just for a moment, for, for, uh, or for the sake of, of uh, uh, survey and reminder, just a few quick observations about the first stage. We covered it last Sunday, the first stage of this next event. And I want to give you some, some descriptions of it, as well as, as you're going to see, I'm going to give you a bunch of S words to help remember and some kind of details that we find Paul giving related to this particular coming of Christ. And so when we talked about the descent of Christ in verse 16a, I think you can summarize it in three observations here. First of all, this event is not a natural event, but it is a personal manifestation of Christ himself. And in that sense, it's very supernatural. It's not just another kind of normal event within the confines of normal human history. This is a very supernatural event in that it is Christ himself who descends. We also notice that this is not a mundane event, uh, something that is somewhat similar to other kinds of unique, perhaps natural disasters or or sensational kind of, of events within human history. This is a spectacular one. And it is attended to by the commanding cry. We, we read of that in 16 that there is that, that shout. Then there is the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. So very much it's a, it's a very dramatic event. And thirdly, this is not some gradual event that is going to unfold over a long period of time. As we look at that descent of Christ, this is an instantaneous event and it is a surprise. It has all the hallmarks of an unexpected, surprising, or sudden event. So it's supernatural, it's spectacular, and it is sudden. That's how Paul describes it so far. Now let's get into the second stage here, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And this is found in the second half of verse 16, where Paul makes the statement, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. So as that descent takes place, and particularly in response to that commanding cry, you have the very next stage developed. And that is going to be marked by the resurrection of the dead. Now, it's important to note here that Paul now skips the euphemism that he had been using in the previous verses. If you look at verses 13, 14, and 15, as he consoles and comforts the Thessalonians, he referred to dead believers as those who had fallen asleep in Christ. The Thessalonians had been concerned about their state and their involvement in the coming of Christ, they didn't have all the information that they needed, and that's why Paul writes here these these extra details, and Paul has been very careful to console them, to provide them with comfort, and so in the initial part of this paragraph, he refers to the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, but now he, he skips the euphemism and gets straight to the point, and he calls them the dead. The dead. He uses literal language here, but as we see in the text here in verse 16, he doesn't just call them the dead, but he limits this category by a little phrase. He has in view here a particular kind of dead who are going to experience this resurrection, and this is so very important to note. He calls them the dead in Christ. These are not just any who are dead. This is not just all of mankind who will experience this resurrection at the descent of Christ in response to his commanding cry. No, this refers only to his own who know his voice. 
These are the dead in Christ. And this little tiny phrase is so very important as it relates to the broader discussion of what is going on here in this future eschatological event. This is not something, as we read through this text, that touches unbelievers at all. Nothing in these details in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, and specifically in verses 16 to 17, include unbelievers. It is directed toward those who are in Christ. And this first category of, of people are called the dead in Christ. And, and that little phrase, in Christ, limits, as one commentator says, the scope of the dead to those who have experienced physical death while being in spiritual union with Christ. In other words, this is a reference to those, in particular in the Thessalonian correspondence here, those who had become believers, to those who had been part of that Thessalonian congregation, and at some point from the founding of the church, six months or so previous to this letter, to the moment of Timothy's arrival and, and then his, his departure to come and tell Paul what was going on in Thessalonica, there had been some who had perished, some of their members. But it is important to note here that Paul gives us a detail that helps us distinguish this resurrection from the other kinds of resurrection that are described in the Bible. And this is something that is often missed Uh, by students of Scripture as they look at these different resurrections and have this tendency to want to put all of the resurrection teaching all into one future event. But Paul gives us this little phrase to say, no, this is a special resurrection. This is one that pertains to those who are in Christ. And that, it raises the, the, the question then, well, who are the in Christ? How does Paul envision the in Christ Are these all those who have ever believed by faith in the promise of God, stretching all the way back to Abraham and even before him, to those who believed in the promise? Or how do we understand this phrase in Christ? And this is very critical for understanding this text. Well, let's say this. First of all, we know that those who are in Christ experience a resurrection, the dead, in Christ experience a resurrection at this point at which Paul is talking about, this point in the future. We know that. That's kind of the ending point. We have to work backward from that. So to what extent does this phrase, in Christ, relate? Who does it include? And when we serve letters and we look at how Paul uses this phrase, in Christ, it is very definitive that he is referring to the church age. He is referring to those who have been incorporated into Jesus Christ from the, from the moment of, of the day of Pentecost until the time here of the resurrection of those in Christ. This is speaking of church-age believers, those who have, who have experienced that mystical union with Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost to this particular moment that Paul has in mind. Now, just an example of this, in 1 Thessalonians, look back to chapter 1. Look back to chapter 1, verse 1. Paul uses this phrase at the very beginning of his letter when he says this, to the church of, uh, this is verse 1, to the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look, for example, as well at chapter 2, verse 14, where Paul says this about the believers there. He says, you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Again, another example of how Paul, as he thinks of the, the corporate entity in Christ, it is a reference to the church. You could turn also to a letter like Galatians, And I think Galatians has one of the key descriptions of this, this category of those who are in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26 to 28, Paul writes this to the Galatians. uh, This, a mixed congregation, there were Jewish converts to Christ, but mainly Gentiles. Those who were formerly pagans turned from their idols and, and, and now embraced 
Jesus Christ by faith. And Paul describes them this way. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. This is a unique description that that describes the church. It was different than how the saints of the Old Testament were described. This is a description that relates to the church age. And so as we read that in Christ will rise first, Paul is giving us here an indication that this relates to church age believers who have passed away before this coming of Christ those who are part of the universal body of Christ. Now, what does it mean that they will rise? This is not a mere resuscitation. This is a true, full resurrection. What's interesting to note here is that Paul just has a very simple verb for resurrection. They will rise. It's noteworthy that that Paul doesn't have to, he doesn't have to, instruct them here of the concept of the resurrection. He doesn't have to describe this idea. And we can get from that the pretty confident assumption that the Thessalonians already knew a resurrection. They they had no doubt about that. Paul didn't have to correct their understanding of the resurrection, the reality of this bodily resurrection that will come for God's people at some point in the future. And so Paul simply says, they will come back to life from the dead. Their bodies will come to life. And he states it as a sure fact. And what he adds here is, again, one of these little notes of consolation to the Thessalonians. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first. They will rise first. Now remember, as we've discussed already, the Thessalonians, being a New church, Paul having been driven from them before the right time. Paul was in the process of discipling that new congregation, was forced to leave, and Paul was torn over that because he longed to impart to them the the instruction uh, of their faith. And he was forced to leave because of the riot that broke out and then because of the bond that the believers had to pay, ensuring that Paul wouldn't come back, at least for a time. And Paul was torn by that because he knew that the Thessalonians still needed instruction and building up in the faith. And he refers to that even in chapter 3, verse 10. He, he talks about desiring to return in order to complete what is lacking in your faith. And what was lacking in their faith was a full understanding of the church as it relates to God's future plan. And in the absence of that full teaching, the Thessalonians had grown concerned They didn't have the right full doctrine on what would happen to those who had died when Christ comes to rescue the church from the wrath to come. Remember 1 verse 10, the Thessalonians, by this vivid faith that they were waiting for Jesus from heaven who would rescue them from coming wrath. But what would happen to those who had already died? Would they remain in the grave until some later time in terms of their bodies? What would happen to them? And so Paul in this section gives comfort because he says, listen, the dead in Christ are not disadvantaged. In fact, he draws their attention to this reality that the moment when Christ comes, that call is given. And the very next stage upon that descent is that those who have waited the longest for their glorified bodies, those who have already departed, They have that first joy. They are the first ones to taste full glorification. Ends not just to their souls, as they would have already experienced being in the presence of God, having departed, but now receiving those resurrected bodies. They are the first, Paul says. Far from being excluded 
Far from missing out, Paul comforts them in saying they will be the first participants in this next dramatic act of God's redemptive plan. So let's summarize the second stage. The second stage is this. After or as the descent of Christ is taking place, now we have this second stage, the resurrection of the dead in Christ. What, it is, marked, what is it marked by? Number one, it is, it is marked as selective. This is not a universal event. This doesn't affecting only those who are dead in Christ. This second stage, this resurrection from the dead. Only the dead in Christ, not all are involved in this resurrection. It's selective. Secondly, it's also systematic. There is an orderliness to this. This is not chaos, but there is an orderliness to this that gives the preference, as I said, to those who have waited the longest. They have been waiting for that moment to be reunited with their glorified bodies, and they are given the preference. And that comes through in the, in the compassion and the mercies of God that they are the first ones to taste full glory. And third, again, this is stunning. This is a stunning event. Resurrection. Resurrection. Bodies that had decayed in the grave, that had turned into dust, all of a sudden are materialized. And out of the graves come this perfect material body. The resurrection has always been something that the critics and the skeptics have always said, this is unbelievable. You cannot have a dead dead person come to life. He cannot receive back his body. It's gone. And here God reconstitutes in a glorified manner their bodies. It is stunning. This is no ordinary event, but a miraculous one. So the descent of Christ, stage one, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, stage two. Now let's look at the third stage, the rapture of all believers to Christ. Rapture of all believers to Christ. Paul writes this in the beginning of verse 17. Then... We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, notice here, Paul begins with another sequence statement or another sequence term. Then, Paul is going through this step by step. One of the things that's that's, uh, discouraging or disappointing in some commentaries is that they dismiss this language and said, Paul, say, Paul is just speaking metaphorically here. There is no chronology to this. There is no sequence to this. Paul is just speaking optimistically of the future. But Paul's own terms here show very much logical and sequential progression. He is giving us details, and this little word then is part of that, that uh, argument. Then. The next sequence. And Paul, the second category of believers uh, who are involved in this next uh, event in God's prophetic and God's redemptive plan. He calls them those who are alive and remain. We've seen this already going back to verse 15. In verse 15, Paul referred to this group. He says this, he says, for we, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul has already introduced us to this group. And notice that Paul puts himself in this group. It is once again emphatic. In other words, the pronoun that is used there, it, 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 he doesn't just say for those who are asleep, it's we and the emphasis falling on the we. Paul includes himself together with the, those who are alive and, and remaining to us that Paul very much believed that this whole event could happen in his lifetime. It could happen at any moment. It could happen by the time the Thessalonians read the letter. He includes himself to show his belief in what we call the imminency of this. There is... No long period of time that we can calculate that will come before this 
next event that we can gauge how much time I have left until this happens. This is the very next event, and Paul believed it could happen in his lifetime. Notice what else he says here as he describes the second category of church-age believers. He says, we will be caught up. Now, this is where the debate occurs. More often than not, this is where the ignorance occurs in this text. A lot of commentaries skip over this verb very quickly. Because it is this verb, the Greek verb harpazain, harpazain, that is what we translate as the rapture, to rapture. This is the word. If we look at this term in the Greek, how it was used both in classical Greek, how it was used even in the the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, how it was used even in the Greek at the time outside of the Bible, but in that time, the word had these, these ideas. For example, it was used to describe making off with someone's property by attacking or seizing. It has the idea of to steal and to carry off, this idea of property that is, that is unpredicted, unforeseen. It describes what thieves do when they break in. And they don't linger. You know, they don't sit down on the couch and wait for you to come home. They're gone. They, the idea is to get and, and go, a grab and go. You're out of here. That's the idea. It was used in those kinds of contexts. Or it was, again, a slightly different idea was to grab or seize suddenly so as to remove or gain control. And so it was used, for example, to describe kidnapping. It was used for that kind of an idea. And this verb isn't rare in that it isn't just happening here in our text. It actually occurs frequently in the Septuagint to describe certain circumstances and and events in the Old Testament, and it occurs 14 times in the New Testament, all of them. But when we do, we can get an idea of what is involved. When we do go through a few of these, we can get an idea of what is involved in this action of snatching, seizing, to catch away. Matthew 13, verse 19, uses the verb, and we are familiar with this. This is the parable of the soils. And we read of this that happens to the seed cast on the the path. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, raptures it away. That's the same idea, seizes and takes out. That is the idea. It doesn't remain on the path. Acts 8, verse 39. Philip is doing his evangelistic ministry. In this case, it was to the Ethiopian eunuch on a Rosa. And we read this. And when they came up out of the water, Philip was baptizing uh, the eunuch after his belief in, in the Messiah. We read this, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. Same verb. And again, that idea of this dramatic, this this rapid, this instantaneous seizure and removal. That's the idea. We have another case of this verb in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 to 4. And here Paul talks about his own experience in a mini kind of rapture. Notice how he describes this. 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and he's being humble here, so he's referring to himself in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven, removed from that earthly position, and snatched up, seized up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up, there it's repeated again, into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So now when we come back with that kind of an idea, the, the, we, we see now how Paul is describing this event as it relates to 
the believers who are alive at the moment of Christ's descent. They will be caught up. They will be seized. They will be snatched up. They will be taken in that moment from that context. They will be caught up. Harpadzain. Harpadzain. Now, where does the term rapture come from then? Well, the term rapture, our English term, comes from the Latin translation of the Greek verb. That's where we get the term rapture. It comes from rapere, which is the translation of the Greek harpazain. So the next time somebody tells you that the word rapture is not in the Bible, very kindly and gently inform them that they are mistaken and they need to go back and do their study. In fact, you could put it this way. If we will say that the word rapture is not in the Bible, we can also say that the word justification is not in the Bible. And the reason for that is because our word justification isn't taken from the Greek verb dikaio or dikaiosune. It's taken from the Latin version of that word. Our word justification is taken from the Latin, not from the Greek. And the same idea relates to the term rapture. We don't have an English word, harpadzain. We have an English word, rapture. And that is traced to the Latin translation of this concept. Now, a few more things to note here in this, in this third stage as Paul goes on to describe this snatching up of the believers who remain. He says that because of the snatching up, Because of that seizure of those who are alive and remain, we will be caught up, and then there's this phrase, together with them. What is that referring to? It's referring to the fact that we who are living at the moment of this snatching up will be snatched up to join those who have just slightly preceded us, the dead in Christ, who have received their glorified bodies, then... We will meet up with them, as Paul is going to say, in the clouds. But this is fascinating because when we look at this little phrase, together with them, you have what is the most remarkable moment in all of church history after the day of Pentecost. Because think of it. You have all the believers in Christ, all those who are living at the moment of this descent, all of those are snatched from the earth. And at that moment, they meet up with all the dead in Christ. You have in this little phrase, the grand reunion of the entire church age. Paul is going to be there. He will be one who we know he's passed away. He was martyred in the around the age or around the year 8067 and he will be one to receive his body as part of the first group even though he thought that the rapture could happen in his life he died didn't he died and he will be one to receive his own body and you think of the the rest of the apostles and you think of the martyrs of the early church as they suffered and died for the faith and you think of the great reformers and you think of all of those throughout history who who have gone before us in the church, who have believed in Jesus Christ, and they will have their glorified bodies and we will meet them in that grand reunion. What a marvelous moment that will be as the clouds are filled with every single church-age believer who has ever lived and believed in Jesus Christ for their Lord and Savior. And that meeting place will be in the clouds. Why in the clouds? We don't exactly know, but when we look at Acts chapter 1, for example, we see that Christ ascended into the clouds and the clouds obscured the view of all those who are on earth. The disciples themselves, as they stood there and saw Jesus Christ ascend, their visual of the person of Jesus, of his body, disappeared into the clouds. 
And that same idea is present here, that at this moment of the snatching away, the reunion will take place not in a way that is visible to those who are on the land. This will be a reunion that will be obscured to the sight of everyone left and enjoyed only by those who are part of this grand reunion. It will be in the clouds. Now, Paul taught this elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, for example, we read this. Behold, Paul says to the Corinthians, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that is those who are remaining, we will be changed. Now, what is the purpose of this grand reunion in heaven? It is not just for us to enjoy the presence of many believers who have gone before us, passed away. It's not just for us to enjoy being back together with loved ones who who are are deceased. No, it is centered on the person of Jesus. The purpose of this meeting is, Literally, the text says this, that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds for the meeting of the Lord. That's where it takes place. The purpose of the rapture is to meet the Lord. It's to meet the Lord. Now, there's a lot of debate over that meeting. Some have argued, they have used this concept of the meeting to to, to describe what would happen in... Uh, in, in ancient, the ancient Greco-Roman context where the uh, inhabitants of a city would hear of, a, of an approaching magistrate, some kind of civil authority, some kind of, uh, of king, uh, a ruler, someone of prestige, and the people of the city would go out to meet that person, that dignitary, and then accompany that person back into the city. And so... There are some scholars who would say, this is an out and back idea. We go up into the clouds where we meet all of the church for the purpose of meeting Christ, but then we do so in order to return with him to the earth. It is a common view, and it's not the right one for various reasons. Let me give you some additional insight here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to a different kind of picture that is created here. First of all, we could look to a text like John chapter 14, verses 2 to 3. Here we have Jesus comforting the disciples, and he says this, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, and where I am, there you may be also. Now the picture that is, the the illustration, the analogy that is akin to this particular text and what is at play here in 1 Thessalonians is not the idea of, uh, of of a city going out to meet a magistrate and then coming back into the city instead. The picture that is in view here, looking first of all, we'll look at at Jesus' words here, is more of a groom coming for his bride. And the idea was, was that the groom would prepare the place for the married couple before their wedding, before the the start of, of their married life together. He would prepare the place. And then at the right time, on the day of the wedding, the groom would go and pick up the bride and bring the bride to the father's home for the wedding feast. That was the picture. One writer, in fact, one of our professors here at the seminary in an article that he wrote, describes it this way. He says this, quote, A better metaphor is that of the bride and the bridegroom. In this view, 1 Thessalonians 14, verse 13 and following, pictures a bridegroom coming to receive his bride in fulfillment of his promise, John 14, 3. This is a bride who has been made ready for her reception at the groom's home. Once the groom meets the bride, he takes the bride to the father's 
house where the wedding feast will complete the formal union of the marriage. Now you might say, well, how do we know exactly that this idea is what Paul has in mind? How do we know that it is a a, 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 a snatching of the church to go to the presence of the Father rather than to return to earth. Well, there's a very important key that helps us understand this, and it is found in 1 Thessalonians. It's found back in chapter 3. Go back to chapter 3 and to Paul's prayer at the end of, verse, uh, at the end of chapter 3. Now, just look for just a moment and in verse 10. Paul says this, night and day we keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. Chapter 4 and 5 all has to do with the different things that were lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians. But then Paul, immediately after acknowledging this lack, he then prays for what is lacking. And this prayer is is so important. And notice what he says in verses 11 to 13. Now may our God and Father himself... And Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he, the Father, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What's the idea in that prayer? The idea is the presentation of the spotless, perfect bride before the Father with the groom, Jesus. As Paul prays, he prays that that Thessalonian church, as part of all saints, would be sanctified, would be brought through to the final, the the readiness that at that moment when they are presented to the Father, they would stand without blame and in holiness. That is the reason for the coming of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4, to take the bride and to take the bride that is the church and to take the church to the Father for that wondrous moment when he says, here she is. Here she is. She is holy. She is now spotless. It's perfected. That is what the purpose of the rapture here is. So as we look at this third stage, Really quickly, what is accomplished here in the rapture of all the believers to Christ to meet the Lord in the air? First of all, it is a seizing event. It's not predicted, not provoked. It's sovereign and surprising. It is a sweeping event. This is not a partial rapture. This is not a partial resurrection as it relates to the church. This involves everyone in the entire church age meeting together in the cloud to then be presented before the Father. And this is also a separating event. It is not an earthbound event. It is not an event that, re, re, uh, that, that includes a return back to earth, but this is a departure This is a departure because it involves the son taking his bride, the church, to before the father and having her presented in all of her purity. Now let's see the last stage. And this is the ultimate. The life of all believers or the future of all believers with Christ. A little tiny statement. And so we shall always be with the Lord. This little phrase at the beginning, and so introduces the conclusion, the, 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 the destiny for which this is all moving. It is moving for one ultimate purpose, and that purpose is, is that Christ's bride would no longer just have to walk by faith and not by sight. Now it would be forever in presence. And notice what Paul says. He says, And we shall always be. There is an absolutes in this. This is permanence. In fact, the text to emphasize the permanent reality of this says it this way. And so always with the Lord we will be. Emphasizing that existence, that ultimate existence, never again to be separated from sight. Never again to be separated from direct presence with the Lord. 
And that is what all of our futures are moving toward. As the, as the members of the universal body of Christ, we are moving to that point to be with the Lord. The realization of our hope, and we sang about it already, to stand in front of God and to be, be not only spiritually, mystically in Christ, but notice the preposition that is used here, to be with Him, to be with Him, physical presence. One commentator put it this way, the entire content and worth of heaven, the entire blessedness of life eternal is for Paul embraced in the one thought of being united with Christ, his Savior and Lord. So what are the characteristics of this fourth stage, this future of all believers? It is this, number one, it is not a temporary outcome. This is permanent. This achieves a permanent outcome. Number two, it is, it is an intensely satisfying event. This is not something that is disappointing. This is not something that we are in any way used to. We are used to disappointment in this life. We are used to having, having minimal satisfaction when we, when we really look at life. But this is one that is ultimately satisfying because our eyes shall see him and we will forever be with him. And thirdly, this is... Singular in this sense, this is not an ambiguous outcome. This is not something that, that, that creates for us a world of, of divided interests, a world that we are so familiar with now. This is a, a world now, an, a, a state of existence that will have pure focus on that which is ultimately important, and that is the singular focus on Jesus Christ himself. We sang of it this morning in the main service, that forth stands to how great thou art. We sang these words, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. And then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. We sang about it even this morning in that song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, those words in that last stanza. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. This is hugely important truth. This is so very vital for us in life today. This is what gives us hope, that is sure, this is what gives us joy in the, presence, uh, in the presence of trials and difficulties that we face on this earth because we know this is just momentary. This is what gives us hope because we all know the, 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 the stains that we still bear. We still know our unworthiness to be in the presence of God. We still know how far short we fall and how unworthy we are. And the list goes on and on, and yet when we see this truth, and we put the pieces together, and we realize that one day all of the church will be standing in the present spotless and without stain, we realize where this is all moving, and that Christ will accomplish it. We're so far away from it in our present experience, and yet it is coming, it is sure, we will stand with Christ before the Father in that state of existence to which all of our hearts long. And that is why Paul then closes this section with these words, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Not just the general idea, oh, God has it all worked out. Somehow, it'll happen. Not just a a general optimism that we know that he's got things in control. But Paul specifically says, notice the plural, with these words. And, and that reference to these words has to do with all the particulars of this text. Not ambiguities, not generalities, but particulars. And Paul says to the, to the Thessalonian church, you know what, you engage in this one another ministry of encouraging one another with these specifics, with these details. Let me close with this quote. The comfort to be experienced lies in the very words 
the writers, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, have given them the Thessalonians. These very words contain not only the antidote to their sorrow, but proclaim a message of encouragement and hope. There is solid comfort in these words for believers when they stand beside the grave of loved ones. Their rich comfort stands in striking contrast to the insufficiency of the comfort that the pagan world had to offer in such an hour. This is why we should be so different than the world in our demeanor, even in the face of death. Because for us, it is not death to die. The sting of death has been removed. Let's pray. What a wonderful, encouraging truth this is, Father. It is stated with such conviction on Paul's part as you moved him to write. He states it in no uncertain terms. He says, this is the word of the Lord. This is binding. This is your promise. And it gives us such hope. It gives us hope in so many different ways. It gives us hope at the graveside. It gives us hope even when we hear of a doctor's prognosis of our own health. It gives us hope even when we look inside ourselves and see the remaining stain of sin and wonder, when will it ever be done? When will it ever be gone? And yet we read in these words such a wonderful truth, a promise that it will be gone. It will be done away with. Christ is coming. He will come to get his church. And what a glorious moment that will be when he presents her to the Father, spotless. A grand reunion. We long for that. But we confess we don't long for it enough. And so we ask that you'd press this truth deep within us. May it be on our lips to one another as we encourage and exhort each other. And may it result in a, in a perspective on life that is completely otherworldly and unknown to the world around us. May that be their attraction then to the God of this gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.